It would be great if you've got uh, John 13 open in front of you. It will uh, help you see where I'm going. Now, some of you will know better than me, but in the Middle East, they don't like feet very much. I don't think anybody really likes feet, do they? But in the, the Middle East, they really don't like feet. I discovered this when I was having, uh, having a, some Bible studies with some Egyptian friends, and uh, uh, they were making me tea, and uh, uh, in their, their Egyptian tea involved them ripping open the tea, pa- tea bag, pouring the tea into uh, the, the, the cup, uh, filling it up with boiling water and then putting more sugar in than I had any idea it might dissolve. And uh, so here I've got this sweet syrupy tea soup and uh, sitting down having this lovely chat with uh, my, my left foot resting on my right knee. And my friend Mohammed was sitting to my right and said, I, I know you don't understand this, but where I come from, that's a great insult to point the sole of your foot towards me. So I apologised and put it down. Uh, Shortly afterwards, uh, a few years later, Tony Blair met with uh, Colonel Gaddafi. Do you remember this? Uh, In a a tent in the UK. And uh, on the front page of all the uh, newspapers there was Colonel Gaddafi chatting to Tony Blair with the sole of his foot pointing towards Tony Blair. And apparently, in the Middle East, everyone thought that was hilarious. He was doing the, uh, the, the Middle Eastern equivalent of showing a V sign, and Tony Blair didn't know, uh, couldn't recognise it. Uh, and then, uh, do you remember the Iraqi journalist Muntada al-Zaidi throwing his shoes at President Bush uh, during a press conference in 2008, with the words, this is a farewell kiss from the Iraqi people, you dog. This is for the widows and orphans and all those killed in Iraq. Now, why did he throw his shoes at him? If he'd wanted to injure him, there are better weapons he could have chosen, aren't there? But the gravest insults to say, you belong where my feet go. You you belong under the soles of my feet. So have a look at verses 1 to 5. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the worlds, he loved them to the end. Okay, so this is a display first and foremost of his love. Verse 2, And supper being ended... The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Now, how would you finish that sentence? I mean, if it was about you, if you knew that God had given everything into your hands, you had authority over all of it and that you had been sent by God and were returning to God. Okay, So this is supreme authority, just the ultimate in credentials. What would therefore be true of you? In uh, Jerusalem, they didn't have lorries, of course. Uh, Goods were carried around by animals in those days. So 
hear about donkeys carrying goods quite a lot of the time. So you can imagine how filthy the streets got and uh, actually how, how badly people needed their feet washed when they'd walked in sandals through those streets and arrived at their destination. And I'm sure you can imagine why nobody wanted to do that job. The rabbis insisted that foot washing was too demeaning to ask a Jewish adult slave to do and should be reserved only for foreigners or children. There was uh, one case that I read about, actually, of a, a rabbi coming home and his mum wanting to wash his feet, and the rabbi refused, saying it was too humiliating for her, and she actually took him to the rabbinical court, uh, saying that she would regard it as a privilege. And anyway, anyway, it's, it's just not the sort of... Something so demeaning that even some slaves were prevented from doing it. The disciples had all come into the, room for the upper room for the Last Supper, but none of them had wanted to wash the others' feet. Nobody wanted to humiliate themselves uh, in that way, to, to lower themselves compared to all the others, to completely lose their status to treat the others as better than themselves. In fact, we read that uh, they, uh, in one of the Gospels, they even had an argument about uh, uh, which would be remembered as the greatest among them. Apart from Jesus, we see what he, he did. Uh, uh, verse 4, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. I think the most remarkable thing is, is, is just as knowing all these things. Beginning of verse 3, knowing that the Father had done this, knowing all of this, off he goes. And I think reading this before, I'd mentally inserted a word there, uh, as if it said, despite knowing, despite knowing all these things. And it, uh, you look in vain for that word. In fact, the, the, the translators um, have a little debate among themselves. There's a Greek word, hoti, which can sometimes mean because, sometimes it means that. Uh, and, uh, uh, but the implication being that the, what's going on in verse 3 explains what's going on in verse 4. He doesn't do verses 4 and 5 despite knowing what he knows in verse 3. He does it because he knows that, God is, that he has come from God and God has given everything into his power. If you're doing that, if you're mentally inserting a word despite, then I want to challenge you. Like me, you mentally have a particularly nasty heresy in your mind. You, you may not realize it. You may say, oh, no, no, I, I don't agree with that. But here's the implication. You're thinking of God as if he's a bit like me. That uh, if, as, soon as, um, as soon as he can do whatever he wants, it's a tendency to be lazy, self-seeking, bossing people around. No, he knows all things are given into his power. Jesus knew that he was divine. And therefore, 
he washed the disciples' feet. The truth is that God is eternal love. His divinity is not surprising uh, when he washed his disciples' feet. If you really know what God is like, his divinity explains Jesus' actions. For ages without beginning, before the creation of the universe, the only thing that existed was God the Father pouring out his eternal love on his Son through the Holy Spirit. And the Son responding in love, empowered by the Holy Spirit. When the Bible says God is love, that's what it's talking about. Not that God has now started being loving since he created people to love. No, throughout all eternity. So what defines God, what's, what is right, completely central to his nature, is that God is love. So Jesus didn't wash the disciples' feet despite being God's. He washed the disciples' feet because in eternity he had always been exhibiting humble, eternal, self-giving love. Which means there is no difference, grumpy, less humble God hiding behind Jesus. Colossians 1.15 tells us, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the image of him. If you want to see what God is like, you look at Jesus and you see his character displayed perfectly. John 5.19, Jesus said, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. So when you see Jesus doing things like that, it's because this is the character of God the Father. Now, what is Jesus' glory? Now, how does he most glorify his father? Was it when he walked on the water across across the Galilee? Uh, Was it when he fed 5,000 people? Uh, with uh, some kid's lunchbox? Uh, Was it when he walked through the mob trying to kill him in in Galilee? Was it when he rose from the dead? That's a good candidate, isn't it? Have a look at verses 31 and 32. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. He said, now? What, when, when was now? What had happened? Well, verse 31, when he had gone out, when Judas Iscariot had left the room. You see, as you remember from the reading, uh, Peter had just been asking Jesus who the traitor was. I think Peter, I think from all that we know of Peter's mindset that night, you know, he, he had a sword, he charged that uh, enormous uh, horde of troops. Uh, he wanted to do anything to keep Jesus alive. When he finds out there's a traitor in the room, I'm pretty confident that the reason Peter wanted to know is because he, he planned for that traitor never to leave that room alive. Peter loves Jesus but he understood nothing about the cross yet. 
See, Peter was still with the other disciples, longing for status, saying, no, 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 foot washings, I don't need to wash your feet. You know, we'll, we'll get somebody else to do that. Let's debate who the greatest is. I'm sure I'm right up there. And so he's asking John who the traitor was. Uh, he can't ask Jesus directly. I mean, Jesus would know what, uh, what Peter meant. Uh, so he asks John, uh, and uh, you see, uh, you read here, the disciple that Jesus loved uh, is uh, leaning uh, on his chest. Um, it, you see, in those days, for, for having meals like this, uh, they didn't have uh, tall tables and, and chairs like we have now, but uh, people would all be reclining on one elbow, lying down, uh, all in a row with the, the table there. And, uh, uh, and so John was clearly the one just in front of Jesus, and he could lean back against Jesus' chest and whisper the question, Hey, Jesus, who's the traitor? And Jesus gave him an answer in code, didn't he? So he whispers to John, It's the one to whom I give this piece of bread after I've dipped it. And uh, he, he dips it, as we read. He gave it to Judas. And at this point, John knows who the traitor is. But he hasn't had chance to tell Peter yet. Nobody else in the room knows who it is. And before, he, um, and before uh, John could share this information with Peter, you have uh, verse 27. Uh, end of verse 27. Uh, Jesus said to Judas, What you do, do quickly. So by sending Judas safely out of the door, Jesus had deliberately set in motion the events that would lead to his arrest and execution. It wouldn't take long for Judas to walk across town to find the chief priests, who would then fetch the temple guards, muster the soldiers that they needed, and then Judas would lead them to where they could find Jesus. From this moment onwards, the clock is ticking. The soldiers are coming. He had set in motion the events that would lead to his death. And it's at that point Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Do you notice? This is God's glory. Not domination, but humble, self-giving love. This is what glorifies the Father. Which means we may need to rethink what glory means. We may need to rethink what godliness means. Or what it means to be important. Or to exercise authority. If this is the character of our creator God, to whom we will all be accountable, to who, before whom we will all stand in judgment one day and give account to how we've lived our lives, how we've exercised our authority in work or as parents, or whatever other authority we might have. What God considers glorious is when we give ourselves in humble, self-giving love. This is his character. This is the God who made everything else, who will bring everything, including us, under his feet. And we so often see authority being expressed in prideful and selfish ways, so often being abused, Sometimes we think that's normal, don't we? We can't imagine it being done 
any other way. You imagine Donald Trump throwing himself into the path of a bullet to save one of his secret service agents. Of course, we can't imagine things like that. But here is God, our King, Jesus, the, the Christ, giving himself humbly for his people. Before sin, there was only humble, self-giving love. And when sin is destroyed, for eternity to come, there will only be humble, self-giving love. But now, his people will have been redeemed and washed and will be joining in the eternal love of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Secondly, Jesus had to be humbled for us to be clean. Have a look at verse 6, would you? Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. It's hilarious what he says, isn't he? Isn't it? The fact that he can say, Lord, no. It's, it's nonsense, isn't it? He calls him Lord in verse 6, says, tells him no in verse 8. We can't do those two things at the same time, can we? Either we say no or we call him Lord. But of course, every, every time we sin, that's what we're doing, isn't it? As Christians, we say, oh yes, Jesus is my Lord and Saviour, but right now I'm going to do something else. It doesn't make sense. We shouldn't be able to do it. And yet constantly, that's true of us, isn't it? Have you ever felt too guilty to pray? Or too guilty to take the Lord's Supper? Maybe you came in this morning, you saw the table all laid up there, and you thought, oh no, I've, I've messed up too badly this week. I, I, can't, I can't take the Lord's Supper. I, I just feel too dirty. Maybe you've come today ashamed of something you've done. Maybe it's something you've never done before. Maybe it's something that actually what makes it so bad is that you've been forgiven for this before and you've blundered straight back into it and you can't bring yourself to ask for forgiveness for that same thing again. Peter has already acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ. In the Old Testament, the Christ has promised all authority in heaven and on earth all the nations will come and worship him. He is the king over everyone forever. And he says to him, no. And what's he saying no for? You will not wash me. I will not allow you to debase yourself to serve me in this way. I am not worthy of it. You cannot do that to me. But you see, Peter can't think of anything lower more humiliating than for this divine king to wash his feet, to behave like lower than a slave. You see, Jesus can. Jesus can think of something much worse that he can do. And he's got it planned for tomorrow morning. Uh, at about nine o'clock the following morning, he would be nailed to a cross. At about midday, the sun would go black as the, the father turned his face away, uh, loaded onto Jesus, 
all the sin of all his people. The king would carry the sin and guilt and shame of his entire kingdom. And he would bear it before the law court of the Father on our behalf, taking responsibility for Peter, for you, for me, for all of us. And he would pay it in full. He would die bearing it, taking it away, making us clean so that we can approach God. Have a look at verse 9. Uh, look, well, no, sorry. End of verse 8 first. If I don't wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. Do you understand? This is the only way. The only way you can get to heaven. This is what you depend on. This is what you depended on when you became a Christian, if you're already a believer. This is the only entry point to heaven, if you are not. That Jesus debases himself on the cross. He takes your and my shame. He takes it on himself. He suffers and he dies justly for the sins that we've committed. He went there completely innocent as an individual, didn't he? Had no sin of his own to pay for, but as the king of his kingdom, taking responsibility for all his people, he died justly for the sin of his people. And this is the only way in. Unless he washes you, you have no part with him. So if, uh, if, if at the beginning of this uh, sermon you were thinking, okay, I, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. I hope uh, that person uh, might uh, take this to heart. Actually, no, 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 this is for you. There are no people who are members of Christ's kingdom apart from, from through this gateway. Unless he washes you, you have no part with him. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, in that case, not my feet only, but also my hands and my heads. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So the, the first time when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, when we are converted when we are baptised in the Holy Spirit, uh, we are washed then. It is like having a bath. But what he, you see what he's pointing out? There is an ongoing need for regular repentance. We need to keep coming back to him and on the basis of that same one finished, unique work that he completed on the cross, we are still in need of uh, forgiveness, repentance and faith. We still need uh, to keep coming to him uh, as it were to have our feet washed. So whoever you are and whatever you've done, bring him all your muck and shame. Okay, don't think, oh no, I can't, I can't bear, I cannot bear to do it again. I, it would be such uh, an imposition, such, uh, such a liberty. He commands it. He commands all people everywhere to repent. He calls you to repent, to bring him all your muck and shame. Don't you dare think, okay, I need to clean myself up a bit first, and then I can come. I need a, a week of regular quiet times, and then I can come. I need to do such and such. And No, 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 he says. 
unless he washes you, you have no part with him. It's the only way. Come to him now in your hearts through prayer. Come to him and receive his washing. You see, the gospel is the way we enter the kingdom of heaven. And actually, it's the way we keep going in the kingdom of heaven. It's through his cross that we grow in maturity and make progress. That's the only way. Have a look at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than him, he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Can I ask, are there people whose lives are so dirty that you don't want them near you? People that you think, okay, I'd rather they didn't come to church because I don't want their kids playing with my kids. Maybe there are addicts, people who are sexually immoral, people who just bring chaos with them wherever they go. Do you ever feel that they are beneath you? And you don't want their dirt in your church or in your life. You don't want to be friends with them because of just all the chaos they bring with them. Well, remember, Jesus is far, far above us in status. And yet he has come to wash you and take your sin. He took it on himself. He took the cost of it, the pain of it, the, uh, all the problems of it. We mustn't try and make ourselves greater than Jesus. He washed Judas's feet, remember. He was in the room. John goes, is at pains to point that out to us. We must serve the lowest man, woman or child. We must be their servants. And lastly, godliness means loving dirty people and humbly helping to clean them. Have a look at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So love the church. Love the church. He's speaking to his disciples and he tells them love one another. Love them when they disappoint you. (laughs) The church is made up of forgiven sinners like you. The problem is, our sin doesn't annoy us as much as other people's sin, does it? We, We have excuses for ours. We can understand ours. It's other people's sin that shocks us, doesn't it? Sometimes you are... You will feel that you are trying harder than they are. Sometimes you'll be wrong and sometimes you'll be right. But have you ever tried at your relationship with Christ as hard as him? 
Have you ever been as patient as him? Have you ever sacrificed like he has for, for you? I, here's, the, here's the problem we have. It, it's, it's 34 where he says, as I have loved you. Uh, love one another as I have loved you. It, it's saying, love one another as, in the same way that I have loved you. To the same extent that I have loved you. Which means that we are constantly in this position of, of actually that, that we, we haven't done enough, have we? Uh, no, no matter what God calls us to do in loving one another, we can never tick that box and say, we've done that. No, that's enough. I have been sufficiently patient. I have been su- sufficiently kind. I have, uh, I have done that. Which means that in our relationships with one another, the example that we have is the one who humbled himself to below a slave. Have you, have you ever realised that you've been in the wrong, and, but you've had a row about it beforehand? You think, I, I cannot possibly go back to that person and apologise. Just how humiliating it would be to climb down off, off my high horse after all the things that have been said between us. I cannot bear it. Yet Jesus, the eternal Son of God, made himself a slave to serve us, to bring us into that relationship with his church. Surely we can humble ourselves a bit, can't we? Have you ever thought, you know, just cannot bear to, uh, to pray to God now, knowing that what I've done? Well, actually, that is to say, look, Jesus' cross is not enough or you're not willing to humble yourself to receive it. We can't possibly do that. Jesus loved us first when we deserved no kindness at all, didn't he? He definitely deserves to have our love. We we can't argue with that. He definitely deserves that. And he tells us to give our love for him to the church, to love one another, as he has loved us to sacrifice our own preferences uh, in order to reach out to those who are undeserving as we were and to assist in cleansing them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and we grasp what it means that Christ is glorified. As he had the opportunity to demolish the opposition and instead he humbled himself to rescue us as he poured out his love deeply sacrificially in such a humiliating way And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be looking to grandstand, to gain glory from others. We wouldn't be desperate for other people to think well of us. But instead, with our eyes on the glory of Christ, we would seek your glory. That it would be humble, self-giving love that we prize, not dominance or victory in that sense. Heavenly Father, we pray that we'd be ready to serve the lowest tramp that comes in here the most chaotic, 
drug addicts. The, uh, the person who in the past has done dreadful things, just as Barnabas brought in Saul of Tarsus and persuaded the people to accept him for Christ's sake, Heavenly Father. Guide us, we pray. Lord, help us now as we come to uh, the Lord's Supper, as we remember that actually it's the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that is the only reason that we've been allowed to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the only reason, the only means by which we keep going as believers as, you, as we feed on him by faith. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd keep us coming to you in repentance and faith. Knowing that actually we, we haven't loved you with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. We've never loved our neighbour with the same burning intensity as we care for ourselves. And so our feet still need to be washed day by day. We still need the forgiveness that comes from the cross, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, speak to us now, we pray. Change us, we ask, for Jesus' sake.